Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Form Free .tech podcast. My name is Kevin Holditch, Head of Platform Engineering at Form Free. Today I'm really excited that I've been joined by three Form Free engineers. And what we're going to do today is we're going to discuss what it's like to come from a language and transition over to Go or to move to Go. So we're going to talk about, you know, contrast other languages to Go and the various aspects of the language. So I'm going to go around the room and get everyone to introduce themselves and do you just want to say what you do at Form 3 and what language uh, you're coming from when you move to Form 3. Uh, so we'll start with you, Joe. Hello, yes, um, I'm Joseph Woodward. Feel free to call me Joe, though. Um, I started at Form 3 about um, sort of almost six months ago now. Um, I work in the, the core payments team, um, which has just been changed to the, uh, the core workflow team. Um, Originally had a, a, a .NET background, haven't been doing .NET for about seven years prior to that, and then before that was PHP. Um, yeah, and I've really, really kind of enjoyed learning Go. Cool. Uh, then we'll come to you, Mihai. Hello, I'm Mihai. I joined for three about one year ago, and I have a background of Python. My previous job was doing Python for about eight years. And but when I joined, we were switching to Go. So for the past two years, there was a mix of Python and Go for my for my previous role. And at Form Three, I'm part of the FPS Gateway team. Okay, very cool. And then lastly, you, Nikolai. Uh, hi, I'm Nikolai. I've been at Form Three for two and a half years now. I am currently working on new markets at Form Three. And before that, I was doing Ruby for about eight years, uh, a mix of backend development and some web development with Ruby on Rails. Okay, cool. Thanks a lot, everyone. So I think we've got a wide variety of experience here. We've got um, some C-sharp, Ruby, Python, a little bit of PHP, and I think just sort of set the scene. I'm also from sort of the .NET background, so C-sharp and F-sharp. Um, so we're going to start on the topic of language design philosophies. So Go is sort of a very simple language. Um, compared to a lot of languages um, you guys have come from. So we'll start with sort of error handling in Go, um, and I'll come to you, Joseph, for this one. So can you contrast sort of how Go approaches error handling uh, to .NET? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I'm certainly no expert in the matter, but um, in .NET, normally you'd have exceptions. If something goes wrong, you'd throw an exception um, if it were an exceptional case, whereas in Go, as you know, um, error handling is far more explicit. Um, I think when I, coming from a language that used exceptions to communicate issues um, and, and faults and failures, um, I found, as a lot of people do, using the error equals, does not equal null, um, a bit of a problem. But after a while, I don't know, it kind of disappeared a bit, and I started to appreciate the, um, the improvement in readability it, it introduced. Um, you know, often software, if it's going to live for a long time, it's going to be read far more than it is going to be written. Um, and even though sometimes I'd kind of be at, at odds of myself that, you know, I don't want to have to keep writing this. I had to consciously remind myself that, you know, <laughs> it, was for the, it was for the good, really, for the, the, the people that were going to be reading it in GitHub and, you know, that don't necessarily have an ID and, and don't have the ability to to easily navigate around the code to find, okay, well, there's an exception thrown there and this is caught over here. Um, it, it makes it far, far easier to, to read. So sometimes I do have these internal battles with myself, like, 
me in the future reading it, me right now writing it, and I just deal with the fact that I have to write a, another few characters. Um, but it's interesting to see a lot of a lot of new languages. Um, uh, Ballerina, for instance, is also going down the, the same approach of having explicit error handling. Because it's kind of there, isn't it? It's like with .NET, throwing an exception, it's it's there, just go makes it explicit. It's like it takes it from being a, an implicit thing where the control flow of, say, catching an exception further up the stack and dealing with it, and go makes it very explicit, which... I kind of like. I find, especially with .NET, it was almost an even worse situation because, like something like Java, for example, on the method you have to explicitly write on the method declaration or function declaration, whatever you want to call it, the the exceptions that this throws. Whereas in .NET, you don't even have to do that, so it's very very opaque. So if you've got a really big code base, finding out where an exception is coming from can be quite like an archaeological exercise versus contrast that to Go where the error handling can be quite annoying at the start because you have to write it on every line of code almost, but it's in your face. You can see exactly how the error handling happens. Is that kind of your experience? Yeah, certainly. Um, as I suppose as an engineer, it's, it's quite nice throwing an exception, job done, you move on. Um, so there's a bit more responsibility there to, to really think about how you can handle these exceptions. And I think kind of bringing that to the front as you're writing code has has some good properties as well. Um, you know, it does make you think and consider, okay, well, this if this fails, how do we deal with that? And a lot of the times you'll return that error you know, sort of further up the call stack. Um, but I like the fact that it it brings that kind of, um, that, that conversation into the pull request as well, whereas traditionally, you know, you'd throw an exception and then you'd assume something Felt up the stack was going to catch it and deal with it later. Yeah, I think um, maybe just come to you, Nikolai, because I think in in Ruby, do exceptions work in the same same way, and do people kind of treat them a bit like how they do in .NET, where it's like someone else's problem a lot of the time. I'm just going to throw an exception, and someone else will deal with this downstream. Yes, uh, Ruby in that way, <laughs> the error handling uh, works exactly the same way with exceptions in Ruby, actually a best practice is to wrap your exceptions so that you can trace them a bit better. But in general, it's exactly the same workflow. Okay, so you're saying if you don't wrap the exceptions, that it makes them even harder to work out where they've come from. Yes. Uh, you usually catch all the things you expect and maybe raise some domain-specific errors to be able to trace uh, your problems okay but so, so that's a pa that's a pattern that people follow they explicitly catch all of the exceptions of everything they're calling deal with them in their method and throw a very specific exception upwards but that's just like a programming style that's not enforced yeah. by the language is it kind of no okay. uh, the exception handling it's uh, very standard it's similar to c sharp and java and all those languages okay very cool Okay, I'm going to move the conversation on now. So for those listeners who've never sort of dabbled in Go, Go is what we call a strongly typed language. So you have your type definitions and Go will enforce that. So if you call a function that's expecting two integers, there'll be a compile time error if you if you don't call that with two integers because it will actually do the type checking for you. Um, but a language like uh, Python, I'm going to come to you, Mihai, for this one, is dynamic where those things aren't enforced. You don't find out about them until runtime. Uh, what's your experience on sort of using a dynamic language and a strongly typed language on uh, what do you prefer? What what makes it what makes your life easier day to day? I think 
as with any questions in software engineer, the answer is depends. Um, I've used Python for data processing where data cannot be, I guess data is, is not clean. So you can, you can get a lot of boilerplate around it and the types are not always what people usually say they are, uh, they are. And for this functionality, I think Python is great because you can just uh, have a data pipeline in Python with some uh, really small code that cleans up the data, transforms it in a, in a, with, uh, in a clear structure and sends it to other services to be processed. I think the really important part here is that Python is great and uh, I guess the lack of, strongly, of, of strong types is great if you have a small code base. Uh, my previous adventure was a project with around 250,000 lines of mostly Python 2 code and uh, maintaining it, writing tests and checking bugs was way harder without types. It was countless times that I added an int with a non-type or an int with a string just because it was not clear from, from the meta signature. I guess watching, like trying to see this problem from, from this angle, uh, I would definitely prefer strongly typed languages just because it makes it safer. You know exactly what to expect and you, have, you don't have to write uh, too many tests to make sure the input and output values are always correct because it's already built in in the, in, in the typing system. Okay, very interesting. So um, the message I'm hearing there is for just to kind of make the, the code base usable, you end up with a lot of boilerplate tests that almost check, almost do the type checking. You're doing it yourself kind of in a load of yeah. boilerplate tests. Is that, is that the message? Yes, exactly. And missing pretty much the, I guess, pointer type. I know in Go it's not really a pointer, but pretty much missing the option of telling the difference between actual value and nil is very, it's something that's very important. I really enjoyed it when I moved from, from Python to Go. Okay, very cool. So the, ne the next topic under design philosophies is simplicity. So this is something I think always really strikes everyone when they come to Go because it's only got very, very few keywords and it's sort of a very, very minimalist language. And to begin with, I think most engineers thought is, well, wow, that's gonna be loads of code. If I'm writing something simple, I'm gonna have to write that super ton of code that hasn't got generics, hasn't got hasn't got a lot of stuff that people are probably used to. Um, gonna come back come back around to you, uh, Joe. If you can compare that to something like C sharp that's got a lot of functionality, um, where do you sort of see the trade-offs and do you enjoy the fact that Go is very simple? Yeah, I think that was one of the things that I really liked about Go is it kind of I like that it went back to basics. It went back to you know a, a primitive set of building blocks, um, with what I feel is a, a good balance of abstraction over the top of them. Whereas from my experience with some of the the dot not, dot net libraries I'm used to using, um, generally they were quite heavily abstracted, which it comes again with 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 trade offs. But I like that you know it decided to take the approach to a, a new language of removing a whole bunch of pieces that it felt didn't really add much value um, and then you know incrementally start to fill in any any potential spots that, that are missing but yeah I really like the simplicity of it to kind of just felt like going back to the the, the core fundamentals as opposed to and and also the fact that you're you're just dealing with the the, the, the lower level primitives made things a bit clearer as well 
and you can't really write magic code so easily can you compared to some of these other languages so maybe i'll sort of pick up on that point and come to you nikolai because especially in ruby i know i've looked at some ruby before and i find unless you run it or really know the code very well with a step through debugger if the code base is large enough it's almost impenetrable that's kind of my experience of ruby do you feel like is that your experience of ruby and do you feel like go solves some of those problems because it's simple uh yeah so i would say so uh one of the best things about ruby is the power of metaprogramming so you can build dsls in five minutes uh, to solve any domain problem you have and the result of that is that your business logic is very clear and very simple however it is very much magical <laughs> it, it, it is very difficult to trace uh, because all those metaprogramming uh, techniques uh, do make the code very difficult to trace as the project grows and grows with more domains more things to handle it can become very difficult to actually debug something and figure out what's exactly going on and you have this problem where the language is very simple to work with and you can get up to speed quite fast however it requires very senior expertise uh, not to harm yourself by doing things is it almost like the analogy of you've got this really powerful machine gun which is amazing you can do loads of it but in the wrong hand you can easily take your own toe off exactly exactly okay uh, and then i'm going to come over to you mihai i think sort of python in itself is sort of fairly simple but i know you can do some because of the, its dynamic nature, you can definitely do some uh, some overriding and things like that that can make it hard to follow. Um, do you want to sort of compare that angle of Python to Go and, and what you think is easier to work with out of the two? I think as a if you want to start programming, Python is very easy. But what I really like about Go is it doesn't it's not that flexible, right? You you can do a lot of things. Then there is usually maybe one two ways of solving a problem which is great. It means that you see the code, you understand it, and you kind of see the patterns everywhere. In Python, it's so flexible, and it's pretty much, as Nicolai said with Ruby, you can do pretty much anything. You have inheritance, you have composition, you can use metaprogramming, you can use a lot of things, and you'll see this everywhere. And uh, I guess all the open source libraries are so different in the implementation and views and how they are meant to be used in your project that it, it gets complicated pretty fast. Okay. Joe, come over to you. Yeah, um, I mean, on Mihai's point there, it's um, one of the, the, the things I think is really powerful about Go is, you know, due to the, uh, the, the, simplicity, the simplicity of it, um, when you go into any open source library, you can, and there's, you know, the fact there's one way of doing something in Go, or they try to constrain the number of, different ways of doing things um when you go into an open source project you can clearly understand what the code is doing you can easily comprehend it um whereas with some other languages where they have multiple different ways of doing things and everybody has their own personal style of writing that 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 code or that that language um it can be very difficult to to comprehend what the code is doing whereas so i can totally see why go has kind of done very well in the infrastructure area where you don't want you know, an ever-changing language, you want simplicity and, and and some consistency as well, like all code looks the same, which is nice. 
I think just picking up on your point about all code looks the same, I think tools like Go, FMT and Go Imports, which are actually, just to let everyone know, are actually built into the Go sort of tool chain. So you can run Go space FMT space like dot, and that will run Go format over all of your code. And there's certain, um, you know, amounts of white space and stuff like that, and where you should have the curly brace, should you have it on the next line, all those sort of things. And the Go format tool will basically standardize all of that. So everyone's code looks the same. There's none of this, I think, coming from C Sharp, there's always this discussion when you made a class, do you put like your function definitions at the top, at the bottom? Do you put your curly braces on the next line, on the same line? And all these little details that may seem insignificant, but when you've got loads of different code bases like we do at Form 3, they can really add up because the code suddenly looks very different because of the way people have laid it, laid it out. Whereas I think a standard tool that enforces that is really sort of quite important. Yeah, as a, as a team, you can sometimes expend a lot of energy on trying to negotiate code styles. And that's one of the nice things I liked about Go is it, it trying to remove a lot of that from the equation. Like the spaces versus tabs debate that everyone has. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Uh, I want to come on now to uh, speeds. I think this is one of the things that people always mention when they come to go, like, wow, it's blazing fast. Um, I think, so Nikolai, come over to you. Do you want to compare sort of this, the the runtime and the, and the feel of working with Go with something like Ruby? Yeah. Uh, so first, I think it's worth saying that Ruby is interpreted language. It runs in a VM. Uh, the language has its own VM. And... It, it has a lot of costs doing that. So the benefits are that you can modify things as you go. And yet again, using the metaprogramming, you can change your object as you go and so on. However, in runtime, it is very expensive for the Ruby VM to actually do things, given how anything can change all the time. So in terms of performance, it does suffer. Ruby also... Uh, the CRuby implementation has the problem where it has a global virtual machine lock and it has difficulties running uh, the VM code uh, pretty much on, on multiple threads. So it has some logs, it has a bit of a problem with concurrency. And <laughs> interestingly enough, that is solved by just running Ruby in a Java VM. There is a project called JRuby that just runs Ruby on a Java VM, which provides you a thread-safe VM, and you can actually run concurrent Ruby. Uh, now, interestingly enough, this uh, shifted the Ruby community efforts in building tools for delayed job execution, because you cannot build uh, parallel things easily and performantly in Ruby by itself. So there are very, very advanced and easy-to-use tools where you can just uh, schedule and manage background jobs on that way. Okay, and do you just want to compare that to what it's like in Go? So you move to Go, how does how does it work in Go, just for the listener's benefit? In Go, it's not only extremely simple, where you have a function and you just add the Go in front of it, and it runs uh, as a Go func or a lightweight thread, you can think about it. Also, Go built-in has any concurrency uh, model you want to use. Uh, you can have logs, uh, you can use channels for synchronization, you can do a lot of things. And it's very native to the language and it's very easy to use. 
and they don't come with the cost of global locks or interpreter locks or a, a lot of extra memory to spin up new process or any anything like that that we mostly suffer in the Ruby world. Yeah, I definitely think the the fact that they've built channels into into the Go language lead kind of concurrent program to be a bit simpler than they are in other languages because it's really nice primitive to work with because you can kind of so for listeners benefit you can kind of think of a channel a bit like a pipe where one end you just kind of poke things into and the other end you can read out of it and then because it's built into the language you can read out of it in quite nice ways like from iterate for a loop reading items out of this pipe so every time round you get a new item and you and you do something with it or you can iterate out of it from a sort of switch statement and so you can do different things based on sort of what comes out the end so you can do some fairly nice things that under the bonnet it's doing a lot a lot of lot of work for you but it makes the code look fairly simple and i think more importantly intuitively you can easily understand what's going on versus if you've got a load of threads kicking off with mutexes and locks where it takes a lot more sort of a cognitive overload to understand the code. Um, so just kind of as we've sort of moved into concurrency, maybe just bring in uh, Mihai on that. So do you want to contrast how sort of Python handles concurrency? Do you really write concurrent Python? Well... In Python 2, especially, and but it's also true in Python 3, it's the same thing as Nikolai said with Ruby. There is a global interpreter lock, which pretty much doesn't let you run things on more than one core. So we were forced to do a fan out in terms of processes. And we were running multiple instances of a, of a service uh, by scaling horizontally, so we can just reach a level of parallelism that's uh, good enough for our, for our application. When we switch to Go, with Go routines and everything, um, we reduced the number of instances by a lot, and which meant pretty much uh, redu reducing uh, resources used by, by our Kubernetes cluster, and also improving a bit the maintenance uh, and uh, yeah, sorry, improving the, the maintenance of our, of our services. In Python three, there is this async I/O part uh, with kind of looks like a syntax is the same with JavaScript with the async and await. I have not used them that much, uh, so I can't say anything about this version, but they do try to improve at least the IO part a bit with, uh, with, with this new syntax. But definitely using Go, it's way easier than, than Python uh, for parallel applications and multi-thread. That's really interesting that to get parallelism out of your application, you couldn't even do it in app. You had to spin up more of your application. Yes. So, um, yeah. Maybe just come over to you, Joe, um, on how .NET handles uh, concurrency. Because I know they've they built in sort of the async await pattern that Mihai was just talking about sort of into the language. Um, do you want to sort of go through how that works? Yes. Yeah. Um, so as you said, you know, .NET um, uses the async and await approach which i believe originally came from f sharp i may be wrong on that i'd have to fact check that so don't don't quote me um but yeah very much the same you have something that is awaitable um and it'll you know it'll, it'll run that um concurrently so i think yeah, that then led to javascript using it and then um rust as well kind of went with that approach 
didn't they? So I think I'd be interested to get your take on this. I think the intentions behind async and await are sort of are fairly nice because it again tries to build uh, concurrency into the language. But personally, I found it very sort of hard to deal with. I don't know if that's just me, but um, so basically for the listeners, you ended up having a function that you had to decorate with this word like await, if memory serves me correct. So, oh, sorry, async. You had to decorate the function with the word async. And then when you called the function, you could await its outputs. You went await foo, basically, which meant in your code, your your execution would sort of carry on. And then when you tried to use the result that was awaited upon, it would block at that point. Um, is that kind of roughly right? And I found that personally almost more difficult to get my head around because you end up with all these awaits and asyncs like really polluting your code base because it has to sort of ripple all the way up through. And it didn't really, it almost made the code more complex in my opinion than if we did just use something simpler like kick off a thread and, and you know, get the result. I know, yeah, I uh, I found the same thing. And, you know, I'd been doing .NET for a while and uh, it still confused me at times. Um, you'd often get stuck trying to do something and, you know, it wasn't just me. I'd be sat with people and you'd, you'd be trying to figure out, okay, what do I need to await here? And it does, it's quite viral in the sense that you try and make something um, asynchronous further down the call stack and it has this this rippling effect all the way up to the very top execution um, of the, the, the main C-sharp file which would then you know, kind of where it interfaces with the with the runtime. And it was only up until recently that they made a wait work up at that point as well. Um, yeah, whereas with Go, it's quite nice to be able to, if you have a library and you want to make a piece of code run in parallel, um, it, it stays within that piece of code. Um, again, it, I suppose it's, it, it's trade-offs, isn't it? But... Um, yeah, I don't know what's going on with that, really. Yeah. No, but it is trade-off, so you don't have to bleed it up to the caller. The caller doesn't need to know about this the await and async stuff as, as they would in C-sharp, that, you know, you can keep that logic contained within your package in Go. Um, yeah, but I suppose with sorry. Go, um, whereas with, with .NET, a lot of things could use the async await pattern. With Go, you very much have to think about, okay, well, what do I want running in a in a channel or in a, in a Go routine? Um, you start off with Go and you want to make use channels everywhere and use Go routines everywhere. Um, whereas, you know, you very quickly learn that's probably not a good idea. Uh -huh. yeah, I wanted to also raise the problem of handling exceptions in this pattern with uh, async IO. I think in this promises or futures or however they call the cross languages, uh, handling ex exceptions is a bit different than you normally would do, which makes development a bit harder and reasoning about them a bit harder as well. Okay. Sorry, Jack. I was just going to say, um, before moving on, um, originally we were talking about sort of speed of the language, which then sort of got talking about concurrency. I think one of the uh, the things that astonished me most when I came to to go was just the compile times as well, like how quickly it compiled. I remember the first time I compiled something, and I sat there like, "Is that it?" And I remember watching a talk um, by the, one of the Prometheus maintainers, and you know, Prometheus is a is a large a large piece of software and I think the compile time is like three seconds or, or something really really slow so it, it really does speed up that feedback cycle you get as you're as you're programming and yeah it's, it's one of those things like when executing go it's fast but also the compile times are definitely um yeah a, a, a strong 
the strong reason to use Go, I think. Yeah, so I had exactly the same concern with compile times for Go. Uh, however, in Ruby, uh, depending on the size of your project, uh, it may take minutes uh, for all your dependencies to be loaded up, uh, all your vendored gems to actually load up, all your application code, all of that to load up and, and so that your application actually builds up. So you don't have the actual compilation, but, but you do pay the time cost either way. And the Go compiler is way faster than that. Yeah, it's, I definitely think that's one of the first things that really strikes you when you first when you write your first sort of program in Go. It compiles so quickly that my experience was the same as Joe's. I was like, I don't think that's worked. So I was like pressing the button again. I'm like, no, it has worked. It's just like zero milliseconds because it's like so quick, it can't even register sort of how long it took. Um, this kind of brings me nicely onto a point about how builds work. So what I think is really nice about Go is like building's kind of part of the Go tool chain. Like so when you install Go, you get a really good SDK with it that comes with a lot of standard tooling. We've already mentioned the FMT tool, FMP tool, however you say it. Also sort of the build tool is really good as well. So you can just, everyone does build, Go builds in the same way, which may sound like something sort of really obvious to say, but in our first sort of year at Form 3, we started writing in Java. And I don't know how Java engineers do it because every Java project I come across is built in a completely different way. You've got Gradle, you've got, you've got Ants, you've got all these different things. It feels like the first thing you do when you open a Java project is spend the first like two weeks learning how to build the thing. Whereas that's, that's like a solved problem in, in Go. So just wanted maybe wanted to touch upon some of the experiences in other languages on how the different projects approach doing builds. Is it very standardized like Go or is it more like the Java world? So maybe come to you on that one, Joe, for .NET. Yeah, so with .NET you have MS Build um, and MS Build is, is a bit of a beast. Um, it's all sort of defined in XML. And I don't know, I, uh, I'm certainly no MS Build expert, um, but a lot of the times I'd pull down, I, I like contributing to open source software and I'd pull down a project and it just wouldn't compile for whatever reason. And then you'd spend a lot of time wrestling trying to make sure the stars aligned to get it to get it working but with go you know i i love the fact like the other day i pulled down the uh the nat server code base and i literally like go build and it just worked and it was great and there's lots of that in go it just seems because it's sort of baked in like that i don't know it, like you say it just seems like it seems like it works which is great you know you don't want to spend the whole time trying to wrestle with the the build system to get it working i think everyone's smiling there but that's also my experience of dotnet and java like it's probably a 50-50 chance on whether a random piece of software you find on GitHub will even build, which is quite funny when you think about it, considering like that's almost a prerequisite. Like in Go, like you said, generally everything just builds, like there's nothing complex to do. So, um, Mihai, maybe I want to come to you on that one. What's your experience with sort of with working with Python? I guess Python does have, uh, for example, testing built in. Uh, with the unit test uh, framework and you can run tests and everything but then again people do have a lot of other libraries and because it's not a standard and it's not easy to use um, there are things like nose tests uh, Django has a different type of testing for example as a framework just because they need to uh, do some uh, testing setup before everything runs um, and yeah formatting there are I guess there is a default one, but it's, it does not come pre-installed, I think, PyLint. But there is also one from Google, and it really depends on, again, 
who's maintaining the project and what do they prefer in terms of styling. So it's again, I think it comes with some of some default tools, but also a lot of alternatives. In terms of running it, because it's interpreted, uh, if you just do pip install to install dependencies, most of the time it works. It's definitely more than 50%. I, I, I would say it's close to 90% if there are not any uh, C dependencies in, the, in, in Python, because you can, you can import C code. Um, so uh, yeah, in terms of tooling, I would say it's good, but there are again too many options and people are using them. It, it's not a clear definition of what's right. To be used. Okay. You say most of the time it works, but I heard that if you're writing lots of different Python on your machine, you have to uh, work around the problem with dependencies by having these Python environments and switching between them all. And it feels like a massive workaround. It doesn't just work out of the box. Is that is that true? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yes. I know you can vendor dependencies because it's it's again another way of of doing things. Uh, you you can vendor dependencies and then you have you will not have this problem. But this is pretty much, I, th I think I've never used PyEnv since Docker was released. Because Docker pretty much solved this problem. You just have a Docker container, I mount the code as a volume, and everything is in there. I don't have to do any setup on my on, on my local for, for, for that. And the code uh, is still okay. working. Okay, but then that's not something native though. That's again, something you've got set up as yes. an engineer. So it feels like another workaround, doesn't it? So if I come to a project, I need to manage yes. dependencies using Docker and jump through all these hoops and really I just want to run the code. Yeah, yeah. And then the dependency, but I guess this is still a problem in all languages with you have two different packages depending on a third one and different of different versions. In Python, there is no easy way as far as I know to, to uh, solve this problem. You just hope it works. And that's called the diamond dependency problem. Yes. Yeah. Okay, and then lastly, just come to you, Nikolai, on that. Uh, yes, for Ruby, actually, we don't have anything built in to the language for, to manage dependencies, but we have two tools that are used through all, throughout every Ruby project. One is RubyGems to build libraries, and the other one is Bundler, which is a similar to Go mode where you define in a very simple text file. Sorry, sorry, Nicola. I think we were talking about how, how builds work. We haven't done the pencil management oh. yet. I know we kind of started, we kind of touched upon it a little bit, but let's, let's yeah. just focus on the, how builds work and we'll come back. We'll, we'll cycle around once more and do the dependency thing and then wrap up the thing. Oh yeah. So, so I think the main point is you come across some code, does it just work or do you have to install a load of random junk and a load of scripts uh for ruby for what i have noticed it does usually work uh most of the maintained packages you pull do work uh the the troubles you are having usually with ruby is that you need to match the version of the ruby interpreter and the library uh they changed a lot of things in the language quite frequently and sometimes quite breaking so your chance if you're running modern Ruby and pulling up an old library of that not working is quite high. So then what are the normal solutions to that? Is there a way to easily switch between versions of the of Ruby? Um, or do you have to sort of uninstall the new version, install the old version to work on that code, then switch back again? And... Uh, there are tools to manage multiple Ruby versions on your machine that make it very, very easy uh, just to switch through them, uh, 
less than a second once you okay. installed. I feel like Go's approach is very neat for that, where they promise sort of a hundred percent compatibility, so you can more or less safely upgrade. Apart from the way dependency management changes a little bit subtly, but you can pretty much just safely upgrade, and old code will still build perfectly, which is I think a really nice property of Go, so you don't have that problem. Which kind of brings me on to the last topic, which I know is. Um, quite a hot one which is dependency management so for the listeners benefit i think go's been for a few iterations of how it does dependency management we're not going to go through all of them but the latest one is that you define something called a module and then you can import other modules uh, that you depend on and they're, they're all kind of versioned but one of the key points is um the code that you depend on is pulled into your project. So you build all of the source code. There's no sort of pre-built code. Even your dependencies is built when you build your program, which is actually quite a nice property because you've got the source code of all of your dependencies, you can debug through it all and you can you can, uh, you can can look through it, how, how all of it works. Um, I don't know, Joe, just come to you on sort of how .NET handles dependency management. Yeah, so that was one of the things I loved uh, when coming to go was just being able to easily click on a third party library and go in and start debugging the code which is fantastic um in .NET, you have something called dlls and nuget packages and the nuget package is, is essentially just a container of a bunch of dlls um and they live sort of in a central repository somewhere like nuget.org um but because in the dll it's um it's like an intermediate language um it's very difficult to you can't go in and see see the code easily um there are tools like jetbrains rider that will be able to turn um, IL back into C sharp for you, which which did a great job. It was it was it was never as easy as just being able to easily browse the source code like you can in Go. Cool. Yeah, I think that was my experience with .NET as well. Like there's work there's tools that can kind of make it happen, but it's it's not really sort of native. So the code you're looking at is just sort of generated. It's not actually the code that was compiled that you're using. So it's a little bit of a difference there. And you're relying on this tooling to do it. So without that tooling, there's just no way of, of looking at the code. Um. Yeah, yeah. And there were ways there recently they've added ways of around it to be able to kind of bundle um, certain um, artifacts into the NuGet packages to be able to make that interpretation far easier and give you a, a more realistic representation of what the IL actually looked like when it was C sharp. Um, but that also involves getting the people the the nuget package owners and maintainers on board with increasing the size of the nuget package just for the ease of debugging um, so it's a bit of a contentious point okay so probably say. only some of the packages have embraced that so as, a, as an engineer it's really random on the if your dependency happened to have taken these extra symbols into their into their package it'll make your life easier if they haven't then you're kind of stuck there's nothing you can do and then sort of coming on to you, Mihai, I think we touched upon it a bit earlier, but how sort of Python does um, dependency management. Yeah, uh, so Python has this built-in tool called pip, and there are, uh, you, you can find all the packages listed in, uh, in, in the pip repository. Um, I guess it's, I wouldn't say it's too much different than Go in terms of how you specify dependencies with, with Go mode. You just say the package in the version. What I really like about Go mod, Go modules, it's they are dependent on the project and they don't install globally, where by default, pip does install things uh, globally. And then 
you get into a whole uh, mess when you have, as you said, multiple Python projects that use different versions of libraries. They get upgraded, downgraded when you switch between one another. So it's not really a great experience. But I also have mixed feelings about using GitHub as the package uh, management for uh, for Go, just because it's it's very hard to see what's uh, I guess what's supported officially by a uh, by an organization. I think they did a good job with the PKG Go Dev, where you can see ratings for packages and all, all that. But yeah, and I guess we can use or we use mirrors for this, so the problem is solved. Yeah, I think one of the things people are worried about with the fact that ultimately Go is backed by GitHub, as you said, is that someone could randomly delete their repo and then and then that code's just gone and you're unless you vendor dependency which means copy it down yeah. to your actual uh, code and you can check it in with with your source code which is possible in go unless you do that when you come to build because it will pull from github on the fly to do the build if you haven't got it locally that build will just fail and then there's you're just stuck at that point uh, okay lastly nicola come on to you of how ruby manages dependencies uh, so for Ruby, it's quite simple. Uh, the Ruby packages are called gems, and locally in your project, you manage them with a tool called Bundler. Uh, Bundler is very simple to configure. You pretty much specify a Ruby version, uh, dependency and its version. You can even specify multiple environments for that dependency. You can say this only should run in my production environment. I just need this one just for tests, so that the you load less things when you bought up specific versions of your applications. Uh, you don't need to load up all your test code when you're uh, building your production environment and so on. And in terms of locally working with them, it's somewhat simple. Uh, you can have multiple versions of the same gem installed on your machine. You can also vendor them. So in general, it's not too bad to work with. Uh, it's very much a solved problem in the Ruby community. Okay, that's quite nice. All right, I think that's pretty much all we've got time for today, everyone. So thanks a lot for taking the time to join me. And if anyone listening is interested in moving to Go, as the three engineers who have just come on the podcast have done, then Form 3 are hiring. You can visit our careers page at form3.tech forward slash careers. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs>